Hello and welcome to So You Think You Can Fan. I'm your host, Sergio, and today is a trio episode. I've got Jacob and Matt here. Say hello. Sorry, I've been taking oh, my Huttese glasses. Okay. So, uh, as someone who checks our analytics neurotically, I've noticed something that you audience members mm-hmm. really seem to enjoy the all guardsman party. So that's all we're doing today. We're giving you what you want. Yes. Except for SCP. Because we can't. Because the wiki's down. Yeah, because the Russians took it down. So Today's we're gonna have 519 to read a, of 22. We're going to have to uh, we're gonna have to read a uh, Ukrainian SCP next time to get back at the Russians. Yes, we the 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 the, big, the the more we can get on Putin's shit list, the better. Indeed. That 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 also Indeed. reminds me at the at the bookstore Indeed. we started selling like these new brand of like hats <laughs> and like clothing and stuff, and the the logo for the company is a big Z, and I just turn over and I see just like a wall of Z's, and it like makes me uncomfortable. What does that have to do with Russia? Uh, because the so over in in Russia uh, as a way of. Um, distinguishing their vehicles from the ukrainians because they use the same uh equipment uh they paint a latin letter on it and that what what letter determines your axis of attack and the most common one is the z um which also they use as like a military propaganda tool um you you may you may have seen like there's some like league of legends player who got in trouble because they drew a z on the map or whatever it was dota was it league it was either league or dota one of the two you can't draw on the map in League of Legends, so that is a Dota. That is a Dota thing. Dota is the most evil video game of all time. Dota is hell. League of Legends is like purgatory. Dota is hell. And I like Dota 2 more than I like League of Legends. Yeah, it was I think Dota League of too. Legends is goddamn horrible. But that's because I was like grandfathered in on a uh, on Dota 2. If I started Dota 2 nowadays, I would want to shoot myself. You know who else wants to shoot themselves? The All Guardsman Party! Yes, enough about war. Let's talk about war gaming. With chapter (coughs) 6. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. Chapter 7. Discount Spaceship. Here's your Warhammer question of the day, gentlemen. What... (laughs) What pronouns do you think each Primarch and the Emperor would use? Uh, Fulgrim is definitely she, she, her, or they, them. Well, that's true. I, I think that's Fulgrim true. has a they, them, the she. <clears throat> I think Alfarius I think is the, definitely uh, they, them. No, 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 Al- Alfarius uses no, all Alfarius, pronouns. No, 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 Alfarius uses it, it's. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's. No, you what about the, uh, the Night Hunter uses... himself? I was going to say Conrad Kurz definitely uses neo pronouns. Like 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 Zim. No, he's got his own like neo neo pronouns. It's 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 like indescribable howling. It's ah okay. This is this is the last this last dumb question I'm gonna ask before we get into the the guardsman party proper. Of all the primarchs, traitor or not, which one is most likely to be on a Joe Rogan podcast? And of the ones that would do a Joe Rogan podcast, which one would get that 
episode banned? Angron. Um, no, Angron. Okay, I don't think Angron would go on the Joe Rogan podcast. For I think Angron would get interviewed angry. by Joe Rogan after an MMA fight and get the uh, broadcast taken down. <laughs> I think probably um, most Kevin likely I would. I, politics. I would say. No, I was gonna say probably Rogel Dorn. I think I think Joe Rogan and Rogel Dorn have very similar political views. <laughs> Micro If Joe Rogan if Joe Rogan and Rogel Dorn had a podcast episode together, Rogel Dorn would describe to Joe Rogan how to build a castle. No, I think look- it would be a controversial episode due to how many uh due to 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 Rogel Dorn's um uh lack of care for civi- civilian casualties. His disdain for civilian casualties. What about a Vulcan? Would Vulcan go on the Joe Rogan Vulcan podcast? Vulcan would not go on the Joe Rogan podcast. I feel like Vulcan would go on like the H3 podcast. <laughs> Vulcan would accidentally call into the H3, would accidentally, accidentally get on the H3 H3 podcast. Which uh, which Primark would do Catavid? <laughs> That Fulgrim? would almost certainly be Perturabo. No, that would just be Fulgrim. That would just be Fulgrim. The femboy. I think. What about I uh, think... Mortarian? No, uh, Mortarian, Mortarian would, would use do... would do like crocodile with a dirty needle. <laughs> I was gonna do say Lehman Russ. <laughs> Lehman Russ would do like DMT. Lehman would do fucking. Uh... What's what's that what's that shit called? Ivermectin. <laughs> Ivermectin. That's not even. That's not a drug. Sergio. That's just, that's that's just not a even a psychedelic. Well, I was gonna say fucking he'd do he'd shoot up horse tranquilizer, and, and I my brain was like horse, and then it was like it's, Ivermectin. It's, it's not horse tranquilizer either. Oh my god. I don't know. Maybe he's got worms. Oh, that reminds me. I had a fucked up dream about this podcast in a worm in this in this in the that involved both of those things. How <clears throat> I had I okay. also had a I had a before you talk about this, I I want to say I also had a dream about this podcast, so I want to tell mine after yours. Oh, I had a dream about this podcast last night, but I'll talk about this earlier dream. So, um like i'm in my bathroom about to record like the podcast and like like i I, like i look down on my phone to message you and i look up at the like the mirror and there's like a there's like a like a worm like coming out of like the side of my face but like i didn't like i don't (laughs) feel it like like i see and i don't it's not hurting me and i'm like oh oh crap so i like um I, I like tugged on it and like I like tore its like head off and I threw it like on the sink, but like and more kept coming worms. out. So so I just keep like pulling and like tearing at it and then eventually like, I get the whole thing out, out of me. And I'm thinking like on my way to my podcast using my biology brain. I'm like, how the heck was that up into my like face and like it wasn't like choking me or like messing with my brain brain or stuff like that. And I go and I talk to you about it. On on the the podcast episode, and it gets aired on like everywhere except for Fox News. Tucker Carlson won't talk about my face worm. He like he he like he I mentions it. We live in a society. He won't, like he he won't go into it. And and I'm talking to you like like on Twitter where I'm just like it's so crazy that Fox News is censoring. So you think you can ban it, and they won't talk about my face <laughs> worm. 
motherfucker Carlson doesn't want to cover Sergio's face worm. It, it wasn't even like for why. a political reason in the dream. Fox News just didn't want to cover it for some reason. But what was your podcast dream? Okay, I think I think I can definitely um if I scroll up, I can definitely find the source of the of the dream or should I say the nightmare that I had. Let me find it. Okay, so for con- this was this had to have been last night. I, I felt like it was like a few days ago, but it definitely was related to this message that you posted yesterday at one okay. a.m. You said for Wednesday, let's finish the adaption episode, and if we're feeling it, recording an, a regular episode. I think that like just something about w- recording two in one day just triggered my brain to just have a nightmare about it. Where I w- I was at my computer and we were getting the re- getting available like everyone available to record, and we're in a call, and I'm just like, oh, let's do this, and then I hear Sergio in my headset, and he's like, uh, also starting today, we're gonna record three 80 minute episodes a day. <laughs> and i go i really don't want to do that that doesn't oh, sound no. that sounds terrible and matt, matt matt just goes what have you done and my lights turn off and <laughs> i just hear Serge, i hear sergio go ah, only it's not in my headset and it's in my room <laughs> and then i woke up and i was like what the fuck oh my god it, that I was, about to that, say, was, my, that I, was my nightmare. I don't think I have... I was going to say, I don't think I have dreams. But actually, no, I do have dreams. I had an intense, epic three-part dream last night about being a tiger that fucking <laughs> came out of the sky into 18th century England. What the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> I don't know what's up with my dreams. My dreams lately have had almost nothing to Your do dreams, with dreams. Your dreams are telling me that you don't have mental illness, and it's hurting my feelings. If I have a dream about real life, it's really, really depressing stuff. And if I have a dream that's not related to my life, it's the most random bullshit possible. Uh, Also, guys, I just made a discovery. I don't know if you noticed this, but on the fanon server, the archived channel is spelled archived. (laughs) Michael just spelled archived with an R. Archived. Archived. Don't tell him. <laughs> Just yeah. leave it. All right, let's actually. But yeah, that was my that. that was my nightmare. All right, so uh, we start off with the regular. Uh, I want you for the Imperial Inquisition uh, uh, image. The squad is getting a tour of the impressively large shuttle they just boarded from none other than their former squad mate Nubby. Nessay seen him that he'd been reassigned to quartermaster duties after his legs were removed by a treacherous interrogator. Now he's happily stomping around on a pair of augment augmetic legs while proudly explaining how he's the mission's supply officer. This announcement is being met with considerable skepticism by Sarge, who's the only member of the squad actually listening. Doc is paying far more attention to Nubby's shiny new metal legs and is interrupting the rambling tour with questions about how they've been attached. When Nubby doesn't provide any helpful answers, Doc asks Sarge to hold the little trooper up so he can take a look. Meanwhile, Twitch's curiosity and paranoia were driving him to find out just what is inside all of the large metal containers being loaded onto the shuttle. 
Cutter, who found the lack of sword-related topics in the tour incredibly boring, is helping the demolition stripper by prying open one of the boxes. When the lid finally pops off, both guards jump back and start swearing. Doc and Sarge, who is still holding Nubby up by the soldiers, come to see what is the matter is. When Sarge sees what's inside the container, as well as the identical markings on all the other containers, he starts shaking the suspended guardsman angry terrier. Nobby! Just why the hell are we taking a few thousand servitors with us? The, the old, guards old guardsman party buys a spaceship. Key intro. Were we supposed to read that all together? Was that your Was that your goal? Was that to get was us to all to read it, and then no, and none yeah. of us did. Sergio gave up halfway, and I didn't start. Well, well, no, no, well, I did. How was I supposed to know that? I thought I was just reading the the square like we you're usually canceled. do. You're canceled. You're canceled. I know. Ah, uh, whatever. What would the What would the theme song for Guardsman Party be? It would be like a, a late '90s. Early to late '90s uh, animated TV show. Generation show. Generation Ten Doctor Who opening. Hmm. I, I was I was gonna be like 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 '80s '90s sitcom opening. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a <clears throat> it's the fucking Full House theme, but but it's with Imperial trumpets. I also thought Always Sunny. <clears throat> Jacob, do you want to go next or should me? Uh, 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 I'll go. So no shit, there we were, on a shuttle filled with tech priests and an army of servitors on our way to assist in the purchase of an entire warp-capable starship for our Inquisitor. Not a normal space transport, not a shuttle, not a flyer, but an entire damned warp ship, the smallest of which were typically over a kilometer long and worth more than a dozen regiments of guard. And to top it all off, Nubby Nubs was standing there, proud as anything, telling the rest of us that he was in charge of the operation. It was completely unbelievable. To clarify, it wasn't unbelievable in the sense that we couldn't fathom how the universe could be so strange and cruel. We literally didn't believe a word Nubby had said. No one with a scrap of intelligence would send him out to buy the recaf, much less a bloody warp ship. Recaf is coffee. I don't know if we've explained that in other episodes before, but if this is the first time you're listening, Recaf is Warhammer 40k coffee. Coffee. Sure, we'd all trust Nubby at our back in a firefight at any day, but the man was a petty thief, a compulsive liar, and had actually been mistaken for a Gretchen on more than one occasion. Sarge told the trooper to stuff a sock in it, and we all went to get a more realistic briefing from the tech priests that were coming with us. There seemed to be a lot of cogboys in the big cargo shuttle with us. Every room or hallway was filled with creepy metal men scoffing at each other in binary. We found the one that Oak had implied was the head tech priest in a conference room surrounded by others, a bunch of subordinates. He was obviously holding some sort of conference or briefing, but we couldn't understand any of the robotic chatter. Sarge just stood there awkwardly and then started loudly clearing his throat until a few cogboys were waved away to deal with us. That became an annoying trend over our journey. The head tech priest and his senior flunkies would never talk to us directly. We were sure they could understand Gothic, but they just never seemed to speak in anything but their damned machine language. Every time we needed to talk to one of them, a junior, junior cogboy would be called out to act as a translator or lead us away so we didn't disturb the senior techies. This did not endear them to us, and we didn't go out of our way to treat them any better. We did get pretty familiar with the junior tech priests, though. Well, <clears throat> not exactly 
familiar. There were a bunch of them, and it was damned hard to pick out which pile of metal tentacles was Brother Ticinius and which was Brother Cassistus. Woe betide the poor guardsman who mistook Logus Gminio for Constructor Paraphanes. Such a mistake was incredibly insulting and a clear indication of our inferior intellect. Matters were not helped by their damned tendency to switch out their augmentics just when you got used to Ark Brother Lexi Mechanic Cogitus Boyus being the tall bastard with the heavy-duty servo arm. He'd swap it out for some sort of sparky tentacle job and replace his fucking legs with treads or something. We would have gone crazy if it weren't for the two lowest-ranking tech priests in the bunch, tech acolytes Jim and Hannah. The two acolytes were the Jim most... Jim and Hannah. The two acolytes were the most junior tech priests on the mission, and were obviously the Mechanicus equivalent of the regimental gopher. Every time you saw them, they'd be carrying something, moving as fast as possible without running, or covered head-to-toe with grease and other less pleasant fluids. We liked Jim and Hannah. They were practically kids, had most of their original parts, and you could pronounce their names while drunk. Best of all, they had a weary put-upon attitude which warmed the khaki-colored blobs which passed for our souls. We quickly made them honorary guardsmen and began taking all of our questions to them. Once we'd met Jim and Hannah, we were finally able to get the real details of our mission. The gist of it was that the tech priests in our squad were all being sent to discreetly purchase a second-hand warp ship. Presumably so it could be used to carry around Oak's recruitment teams without causing a fuss. To our collective relief, the acolytes confirmed that Nubby was not in charge of the operation. He was merely there to act as the public face for the purchase and general observer. His superiors and supply had already chosen the ship, negotiated a price range, gotten the funds into place, hired a navigator and astropath, and handed Nubby a very explicit set of orders. The head Magos and the other tech priests would handle everything else and be more or less in command for the second the ship was deeded over and the original crew was evicted. They do the inspection, prep the ship for travel, and perform any repairs. Finally, once the priest deemed the ship ready for travel, they'd use their servitor to fly the whole damn thing back to some secret Inquisition shipyard for a refit. This all made sense to us, but it was still a wonder that Nubby had been chosen for any part of his mission. He insisted that his superiors had recognized his Inquisition skills and personal experience with ships like, like this, not to mention his clever negotiation tactics and cunning mercantile mind. This was bullshit, and we all knew it. To a man, the rest of us believed he'd been sent because no one would ever look at him and think inquisitorial agent. The rest of us were there to act as backup for Nubby. Okay, officially, this was because every procurer in the field was supposed to have a bunch of trustworthy and discreet agents to assist them. At first, we wondered why, just why we had been chosen over the other available agents. But after we figured out why Nubby had been sent, it was plain as day why we were sent. Obviously, our squad had been chosen because we all looked like the sort of incompetent ex-guard goons that a complete crane would employ as bodyguards. Thanks, Oak. Now that we'd now we traveled, bleh, I can't fucking read. Hold on, my brain is my brain is catching up to my mouth. <clears throat> now we'd traveled a fair bit during our careers in the Inquisition, but this trip was something else. This time we didn't have our own quiet section of ship. Instead, we were surrounded by dozens of cogboys running around preparing an army of servitors for crewing a warship. Everywhere you went, there'd be tech priests chattering at each other, chanting and lighting essence incense, not essence incense welding random pieces of metal, or doing incredibly unsettling things to their servitors. The ship itself was some sort of mechanic as transport, and the quarters of it made available made us 
all think wistfully of the births the Rupert had gotten for us. Apparently, when you become a full tech priest, you stop desiring beds fancier than a wide, wide metal shelf or food that actually has flavor. Also, mechanicus toilets can best be disca- described as terrifying. I like to imagine they all just have like, like ports. Like they don't have assholes or cocks anymore. Like they just have like ports, like catheters. Have, <clears throat> I think they just have a bag. Yeah, they, what's it called? A fucking. There's a name for the bag. I can't think of what it is. I know a what you're talking bag. about. I, yeah, the poop, the poo poo bag, colostomy bag. bag, colostomy bag. Yeah. I like to imagine they just have like colostomy ports and like catheter ports, and they just go to the bathroom and they just plug it in. We all trying Probably. to we, we all trying to stay out of the way and keep to ourselves, but it just didn't work. We always seemed to be underfoot or under tread or under anti graph skimmer. There simply wasn't enough room for anyone that wasn't part of whatever mad plan the techies were all following. Cargo haulers would bowl through us during morning PT. Random tech priests would shout at us if we had touched or sat on anything. My dog is pissed. And our quarters were randomly repurposed for storage, while so, sometimes while we were still in them. No man should wake up in a dark room surrounded by thirty deactivated servitors. None of us were happy, but Twitch had the worst of it. He just couldn't function without a secured perimeter. We were about ready to outright fortify a cargo bay and try to hold it against the Cogboys when Doc got his idea. He suggested that the only way to survive the trip was to become part of the pattern. We spent the rest of the voyage following Jim and Jim and Hannah around like lost puppies. We slept when and where they slept. We ate when they ate. And we did our best to help with whatever unpleasant task they were working on. We probably weren't very helpful, but it kept us alive and relatively sane. It was an immense relief when we finally reached our destination. We piled onto a shuttle and rode to a local orbital station where a few scribes were waiting to brief us on the purchase. We blew them all off and slept for about 20 hours in the blissful quiet of our cogboy free rental rooms. The briefings and preliminary negotiations took about a week, and aside from Nubby, none of us really had to do anything. We more or less hung out in hallways while various scribes became incredibly frustrated with Nubby. There were no assassination attempts, no cultist infiltrators, no orc commando raids, and certainly no gene stealers attacks. Just a bunch of boring guard duty while Nubby drove various expensive lawyers and financial experts into a state of incoherent rage and apocalyptic, furious, frothing madness. One of them did actually try to kill him, but since Nubby had just stolen the man's wallet, it was perfectly understandable. We did pay a little attention to what was going on. Guard duty was boring, and they weren't really hiding the documents or diagrams. Most of it was legal gibberish and jargon, ancient trade logs, and figures about engine strength and storage capacity. None of them, and none of which we even tried to understand, but there were some very nice, funny-looking pictures. From what we saw, the ship was a small one, only two only two kilometers long, and was rather plain looking, just the sort of ship for traveling around unnoticed. That's over a mile in length, by the way. The negotiations continued, and some of the tech priests were sent over to inspect the ship. They took a while, but confirmed that the ship met all requirements. That done with, all that was left was the final meeting between Nubby and the current owner of the vessel. 
and then the picture Holy shit, of uh, the next one is the fat guy from Wally. It's the fat yes. captain from Wally. Some fancy rooms are running out for the deal. Also, I just want to point out, I'm glad you guys didn't comment about me switching between like three different accents when Nubby was speaking because I couldn't decide what Nubby That's sounded okay. like. I think I think it made it. Better. I think he would talk in three different accents. Speaking of him, he was crammed into a frilly suit complete with a powdered wig. It was probably supposed to make him look like a dat look, make him look like a dashing imperial nobleman. But it, w- and it really just made him look like a Gretchen in a dress. It was hard not to laugh as we followed him to the meeting. And when we saw the man selling the ship, it became nearly impossible. If Nubby was a Gretchen in a dress, then the seller was a giant squig in a suit. The man was practically spherical, comically clumsy, and haunts like a goose when he talked. He radiated an aura of incompetence and was followed by a cadre of thugs who all had the same stuffed, suffused expressions we did. The worst part was the man obviously thought of himself as a rogue trader and tried to dress the part. He must have gone through some catalog and ordered one of everything. He had the gaudy coat with epaulets, a large hat with a fetter in it, the cane that obviously contained a sword, and just to top it off, there was a cybernetic parrot perched on his shoulder. The real problem was that while most rogue traders ooze confidence and danger, this one just oozed. We'd seen, we'd fought, and were decorated a bathroom with the head of a real rogue trader before. This guy was more like a kid playing dress-up. We just barely managed to keep our faces straight while Nubby and the wannabe greeted each other. Both of them were handed the relevant documents by their scribes and headed to a private room to conclude the deal. The second the door closed behind them, the fat man's guards cracked up, and we did likewise. It was just too much to bear. Both sets of scribes just shared a miserable look and settled down to wait. The meeting took a surprisingly long time. We all started to get nervous. Every part of the deal had been hammered out beforehand, and this was just supposed to be a matter of signing off. Emperor only knew what Nubby was getting up to in there. Neither of them hit their panic buttons, though, so we sat tight, and eventually both men came out alive and relatively well. Nubby had a disturbingly smug look, and the seller seemed rather flustered, but both of them insisted that everything was sorted out. The scribes at a final review of the signed documents got into a brief whispered argument with Nubby and the fat man and then loudly confirmed that everything was in order. The seller scribes said that all of their men would be off the ship within 30 hours and the whole party made a rather hasty exit. That done with, we headed back to our quarters and passed a word on to the tech priest. The cogways confirmed that they were ready to board the ship and take over as soon as the former crew was out of the way. From there, my fucking sternum just cracked from me hiccuping. That was crazy. From there on out, it was entirely their mission. We were just some passengers and observers. All our squad had to do was keep out of the way until we arrived at the shipyard and someone came to collect us. Judging from how long this chapter is, I don't believe that for some reason. Crazy. The tech priest told us to stay in our quarters until they had their servitors in place so we finished our business with the scribe settled in for a few days of relaxation on the station and asked nubby about what had happened during the meeting according to him the former captain had been a terrible negotiator and was easily haggled down the little bugger was smug as hell about the whole thing and expected a big thank you from oak for saving him a few billion thrones none of us really believed him nubby was always full of that sort of shit but the scribes were happy so it wasn't really our problem In retrospect, not grilling Nubby and finding out exactly what sort of deal he got or how he managed to get it was a tremendous mistake. A few days of idleness later, a shuttle was sent for us, and we were taken to the newest addition to Oak's fleet, the Free Trader Occurrence Border. As we approached the ship, everyone clustered around the windows to get a good look at our purchase. 
A lot of things about the occurrence border grabbed the eye. There were the massive tanks for hauling fluids, the impressive rays of docking hatches along the cargo bays, the odd variations in the color and design of the hull, but mostly there was the fact that the ship was about half as long as the diagrams said it should be. It was amazing, really. The occurrence border mostly followed the standard Imperial ship design. Large engines in the tail, control tower rising above the rear of the ship, long and slightly skinny body, except the bow, the entire bow, was completely gone. The ship just ended halfway through the body in a giant patchwork of fucking scrap metal. It looked like someone had just grabbed the ship, cut it with a giant cleaver, and then smashed the ragged edge flat. As one, we all turned to look at Nubby, who muttered something about, good value for the cost, and he tried to sidle away. It took quite a lot of shaking and yelling to get all the details out of Nubby. Apparently, well, uh, the whole front fell off. The entire front of the vessel, a two-kilometer warp-capable ship which we had just purchased for a staggering amount of collateral on behalf of the Inquisition, fell off. He said it doesn't happen often, just a sort of occasional time-to-time thing. Overall, it's a very safe ship. In fact, in the whole lifetime of the ship, it only happened once. Or twice. Well, maybe three times. Definitely not more than four times. But the important thing was that it would not ever happen again. The previous captain had fixed the problem for good by installing the special made custom prowl. After the last incident, we all eyed the mushroom-shaped pile of slagged scrap on the front of the ship and contemplated just what Oak would do to us. It would probably involve an excruciator and an airlock. All right. The rest of the flight was split between yelling at Nubby and staring at the ship with a sort of morbid curiosity. The closer we got, the more the imperfections became apparent. There were scars and burns, holes and gouges, and the most bizarre set of repairs and additions imaginable. The entire ship must have been stripped off and replaced with spare parts one piece at a time until nothing of the original was left visible. It was a wonder the thing flew at all. Doc suggested that we might not get yelled at by Oak for any of this, because there was no way we'd survive the warp voyage home in this hulk. Eventually, the shuttle docked, and we walked into one of the occurrence border's more intact cargo bays. Hannah, the cog girl, was waiting there to guide us to our quarters. She led us through a maze of tunnels and gave us a rundown of the situation on the way. Most of the servitors were in place, the navigator and the astropath were on board, and the last few repairs and calibrations would be made during the trip. After a while... Sarge cautiously asked her what the tick priests thought about the state of the ship, and her response surprised us. She cheerfully informed us that the entire vessel was an abomination in the eyes of the Messiah and perfectly met all requirements. That second part was a little confusing, but according to her, the whole point was to acquire a thoroughly disreputable vessel that was still capable of running. The cogboys didn't care if half the hull was missing, and if the cargo bays leaked atmosphere, or if most of the ship was pieced together from old wrecks as long as it could travel through the warp they were happy after all they were just here to take it to the shipyard the priests were the ones who would be refitting it for inquisitorial use they'll be perked up at this but sarge reminded him that even if the tech priests were happy the people who were paying for the ship and its refit probably wouldn't be so as we walked all of us noticed dozens of papers 
fix the panels, doors, controls, and, sh- and such. At first, we thought they were the usual purity seals, Mechanicus Prayer, but then Twitch stopped and actually read a few. Each one said something like, this control panel governs the flow of plasma through bays D3 through S15. No one remembers why we have plasma going through there, but if you shut them off, engines 3 and 7 stop working. The gravity in this corridor is tilted 37 degrees to the left. And do not ever touch this button. That one showed up a lot. When we asked Hannah about the notes, she lowered her voice and advised us to take them very seriously. They must have been left by the former crew and were incredibly helpful, but we were never to mention any of them to any of the more senior tech priests. The Cogboys were trying to ignore them since they didn't need advice from anyone outside the priesthood. But unfortunately, the notes were far more accurate than their own scans. The senior priests were taking it as a personal insult every time they had to refer to one of the notes to fix a problem. We all chuckled at that and promised to read any notes we came across. Eventually, we arrived in a cluster of rooms that Jim the Acolyte was clearing out with help of a bunch of servitors. We suge- he suggested that these would make good quarters, pointed t- us towards a storage chest with some relatively edible rations on it, handed us a data slate with a crude map of the ship, and recommended that we stay out of the way of the servitors and tech priests. Once we were settled, the two acolytes scampered off to their next next task. Sarge booted up the data slate, and at about ten, about 10 seconds after Jim and Hannah had disappeared into the giant maze of metal that was our ship, we realized that none of us knew how to read a three-dimensional map. The ensuing argument over whose job it had been to check the map earlier and what we were going to do now was interrupted by the ship's speakers blaring to life. There was a painful burst of binary followed by a monotone voice telling us, telling all hands to prepare for warp transit. Then the universe went glorp and tasted like the color purple for a second. So yeah, after these next, the after these next three, these next four, yeah. Matt, Sergio, me, Matt, we can call it. Okay. <clears throat> the one good thing you could say about the situation was that no one was trying to kill us. At least, not on purpose anyway. On the other hand, we were cruising through the warp in a twisted heap of scrap held together with uh, tape and spit, and none of us even knew where in the ship we were or how to read our map. Now, being lost is a long-standing guard tradition, but this was ridiculous. It's hard enough to navigate in two dimensions with an accurate map and a directional finder, three with an unreadable map, and no way to tell which way you're facing is just unfair. Without the ration bars, we might have actually starved to death in our own ship, or at least been reduced to hunting the servitors for food. After our quarters were secured, we started trying to track down one of the tech priests. We wanted to know where everyone else was, what was going on, and how the hell to read our map. Our comms didn't work for shit inside of all this metal, and we didn't have access to the ship's communication system, so our search had to be done the old-fashioned way, on foot, with hand-drawn maps and trail markers. We didn't feel like passenger on the ship. It was more like we were a recon force plotting hostile terrain, and boy, was that terrain hostile. There were gravity shifts, depressurized sections of ship, exposed power conduits, rooms filled with hot plasma, and dozens of other hazards. Only those helpful little notes kept us alive. Still, even though everything they said was helpful, the notes themselves were mildly disconcerting. They tended to be a little too precise, and Twitch swore that more of them were appearing in areas that we'd already been through. 
This is an Doc SCP. Was... Oh wait, this is Sergius. I'm gaslighting myself. Yeah. <clears throat> but yeah, the the uh, like SVP object something something. It's a ship worth that 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 progressively gets shittier, and there are uh, post-it notes that appear out of nowhere to help you navigate it. Isn't um, this just <clears throat> the plot of Event Horizon? Kind of. I mean, are the Gellerfields down? I mean, Did they mention that? Not mm. yet, but I'm assuming. Alright, so, uh, Doc was leading the patrol that found the first tech priest. Unfortunately, he, re- speak- he refused to speak to us and ducked through a hatch, which locked behind him. The second priest we found wasn't given the chance. Doc and Nubby covered the exits while Cutter tackled the cogboy, holding someone at gunpoint and asking them for technical support and directions probably isn't the officially sanctioned way of doing this sort of thing. At least not when they're on your side, but damned if it didn't work well. The conversation was a little awkward, though. The tech priest turned out to be one of the ones who had briefed us during the trip out and was perfectly willing to talk to us. We did apologize. Once we learned how to use the map, we realized that it was mostly empty space, but it did cover the most important parts of the ship. It mapped out some of the bigger loading bays, the quarters the techies were using, the locations of several critical systems, and the giant spinal shipping corridor and freight lifts that most of the servitors used. The most... The best part was that the terrified tech priest showed us how to fill in the blank spots and add notes, which means we no longer had to depend on Doc's hand-drawn maps to get back to our base. Not that Doc was a bad artist, mind you. He just had a little trouble figuring out how to draw a corridor that angled up and to the left while the gravity shifted to the right wall. Their map in hand and our recon patrol released the tech priest to go grease servitors or whatever and went off to find the two helpful techies. The rough plan was to get a hand with the comm situation from the acolytes, but unfortunately they weren't in the quarters indicated on the map. Doc was dithering about whether to keep searching or wait for them to return when Nubby suggested getting them to come to us. Based on our past experiences, Nubby argued, if we just annoyed enough of the senior tech priests or started breaking things, one of the acolytes would be sent to deal with us. Doc watched in horror as Nubby and Cutter went to work, but he didn't actually do anything to stop them. Three gutted cogitator terminals, two quarters flooded with coolant, and another filled with less pleasant substances and a dismembered maintenance servitor. Later, Sarge's combead came to life. An exhausted-sounding tech acolyte, Jim, asked him to come pick up his team before somebody killed them. We still couldn't use the ship's comms. The Acolyte said it was restricted to the priest for some techie reason, but our comm beads were being boosted by the larger system. Combined with the functioning map and Jim and Hannah's personal contact codes, we had everything we needed to survive the rest of the trip. So we all went back to base to get a night's sleep. Well, if not a night's, then at least a solid 10 hours worth. The ship's light system seemed to be on several different clocks, and the one in our quarters dimmed on a three-hour cycle. Twitch eventually shot them out, and we just used our own lamps. Now, just to be clear, no one in the squad was a sissy, and none of us ever had any trouble with warp travel before. We'd all faced down some incredibly weird and scary shit during our time in the Guard, not to mention what we'd seen as inquisitorial goons. Our nerves might not have been made of steel, but they were definitely iron, or possibly some good quality bronze. That said, the nightmares we had that night were f bloody terrifying. They were the sort of nightmares that take away, that take your every fear and fa- and failing and rub them in your face while you struggle to wake up and tell yourself it's all a dream. We all woke up covered in sweat when one of Twitch's perimeter alarms went off. We didn't even check what set off the alarm. All of us just sat there and thanked the Emperor for Twitch's paranoia. After a few minutes, Doc got up and pulled a yellow note off the inside of her door. It said, In case of bad dreams, check Geller Field Integrity. The note had not been there when we went to sleep. 
Oh, that's spooky. While the note's sudden appearance was mysterious as hell, none of them had steered us wrong so far, and this one was pointing us towards what might be a very serious problem. On the list of incredibly horrible things that can go wrong during warp transit, Gellerfield failure is pretty much at the top. The Gellerfield generator is literally the anti-getting-devoured-by-demonic-horrors device. It is rather important that it keeps performing that function at all times while traveling through the warp. The squad kitted up while Sarge calmed Jim and asked nicely if he'd heard about anything regarding problems with the Gellerfield. We all watched as Sarge's face started to gradually turn white and red and then purple. We bailed out of the room just ahead of the explosion of rage and even though the sealed hatch, we heard Sarge taking out a lot of frustration on poor Jim. Would anybody in specific like to be Sarge? Uh, well, Jake's gone, so I will be Sarge. Um, <clears throat> it's the green text, right? Mm-hmm. The high points included... What do you mean, which one? Why are there six? Who in their right mind would install a damaged Gellerfield generator? Who in their right mind would install six damaged Gellerfield generators? No, there is not a difference between damaged and refurbished. What do you mean it was in the technical briefing? What briefing for who? Where's Nubby? I'll kill, strangle, murder that little bastard. Goddamn, I'll show him a good deal. At that point, Sarge burst through the hatch, and Nubby decided it was a very good time to go check what had set off the outer perimeter alarm while the rest of us restrained the irate non-corn, non-cum. Uh, that, 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 that was uh, the, a, a textbook example of an uh, American field commander saying the sorry state of the Russian military. <laughs> what do you mean you don't have night vision? What do you mean you don't have thermals? What do you mean you're wearing cardboard? <laughs> Who in their right mind would use a decommissioned tank? Who in their right mind would use six decommissioned tanks? What do you mean your ERA is actually egg cartons? What do you mean you are using logs as armor? (laughs) Oh, Lord. I know we aren't so you think you can war, but if we were so you think you can warfare, oh boy, we'd have a field day. This would be a great time for content. This would be a wonderful time. <laughs> we for should content. do a, a, a subscriber only series for like Patreon. So, so you think you can history where we just fucking talk and meme about historical <laughs> things and current events. Yeah, we should. All right. So um, at this point, um, Jake wanted us to wrap things up as uh, this is a very that you can't see it, but this is like 18,000 words. Um, We have other things that we want to do tonight. Um, So we are going to let the ads roll. And when the ads come back, it will be five minutes from now, obviously, because it's not like we're going to record this tomorrow or whatever. But see you guys later. Welcome back from the commercial break. Um, <clears throat> everyone is here. Everyone is ready. Let's uh, let's get into it. So eventually we got Sarge calmed down enough to speak coherently. He explained the whole messed up situation to us. Apparently the ship's Geller field had been scrapped and replaced by several smaller models that had been scavenged from Emperor knows where. There were three along the length of the ship, one near the bridge, two covering the top and bottom decks. We were currently near the one in the bow, and from the looks of things, it was on the fritz. Jim said he'd take a look at it and suggested that we move our quarters farther back 
into the coverage of one of the other generators. That sounded like a good idea, but we decided to take it a step further. We weren't just going to find some random rooms in the next section of the ship. We were going to hike our asses down to that Gellerfield generator, set up camp, and bloody well sleep on it. There was not going to be any screwing around with this nightmare business. Sack time is practically sacred, and anything that serves it must be immediately dealt with. A guardsman who can't fall asleep the second the perimeter is secure is not a true guardsman. We packed up our quarters, rations, field gears, traps, munitions, and everything we had coming with us. As Switch pulled down his perimeter defenses, he found the triggered alarm tucked away in the side of the corridor with a note that says, Please do not obstruct the corridors. That was a little disconcerting, but it's something we could worry about later. The hike aft went pretty quickly as we navigated up to the big spinal corridor. It was really the most comfortable way to get around the ship, even if it was filled with servitors. Before long, we were in a giant room filled with arcane machinery, glowing shit, that had a note that said, Midship Gellerfield Generator. Do not ever touch. Ever. This means you on the door. Before I continue with the reading, I would like to read... Sergio, Sergio knows this. I don't know if he told Matt. We learned some about the All Guardsmen Party um, from a fan who was listening to it, DMing us on Twitter. Oh, yes, yes. App- apparently, all of the the players in this campaign are for me, for, former British Army guys, which is why it reads like a military journal. And also... Uh, the, the phrase, no shit, there we were, is a common phrase in the British Army for embellishing stories. So there's your, there's your facts of the day. Cool. Cool. I didn't, I didn't know if Sergio <laughs> told you that or not. So if he did, then you learned it again. But I if did. he didn't... That's fine. Anyhow. Anyhow. You think it'd be you? You'd think it would be uncomfortable sleeping inside of a room with sparking machinery and delicate devices that you must not touch. But it really wasn't. The noise was considerably less than an artillery barrage, and unlike Twitch's little perimeter traps, everything we needed to avoid touching was either very obvious or labeled. We were all quite happy with our new base and slept like babies that night. The next few days were relatively peaceful. We all felt that that enough stuff had gone wrong for the shoe to qualify as dropped. All that was left was to make ourselves as comfortable as possible for the rest of the trip. Each of us kept busy in our own ways, whether it was exploring the ship and working on the map, helping Jim or Hannah, or compulsively fortifying the perimeter. We almost made it a week before the next crisis. One morning, quote-unquote, as Sarge was going through his daily drills with Cutter, Nubby poked his head and asked if Twitch was allowed to keep his unused explosives in the generator room. A few minutes later, both of them were examining an impressive pile of ordnance that was sitting out of the way behind some glowing pillars and a few minutes late a few minutes after that everyone was called in for a good old-fashioned safety lecture and public reaming the lecture came to a sudden stop when twitch looked at the pile and was informed and informed us that the explosives weren't his and were definitely armed someone was trying to blow up our base and for once it wasn't us this was deeply disturbing also i would just like to say if the people who wrote this and the people who are playing this are british why is there an Italian translation? Yeah. Who is the Italian All Guardsman Party fan? Who's translating it from English to Italian so Italian there people must can be read enough it? Enough of a demand. Should I? Uh, should I at some point read this with a slight British accent in honor of the maybe possibly British people who played it? 
No. Okay. British people are evil. As Twitch went about disarming the explosives, he gave the rest of us a pretty detailed critique. The bombs had been there for a fairly long time, were set up for remote detonation, and had been installed by someone who was nowhere near as good as Twitch. A little thinking led us to believe that the explosives had been placed by someone fairly familiar with the ship, but not with blowing things up. Also, there were probably a few more bombs around. Otherwise, why bother with the remote detonator? While Twitch finished removing the explosives, Sarge called the acolytes and explained the whole situation. Jim and Hannah were pretty impressed by the discovery, and the call was quickly kicked upstairs. Then, their superiors kicked us upstairs again and again, until, finally, we were talking to the ever-unresponsive head tech priest, the cogton, as it were, of the horrible death trap we were all flying in. For the fifth or sixth time, Sarge explained that someone had mined key components of the ship we were all on and it might be a good idea to do something about it. The Cogton did not dignify us with a response and instead raffled off a bunch of binary at the other tech priests on the line. There was a lot of the stupid Cogboy screeching and it sounded like they were taking the situation fairly seriously. None of them told us anything though. Eventually, we got tired of them talking over our heads, and Sarge suggested that perhaps the resident demolitions expert should look into the matter. Maybe Twitch and his good buddies, you know, the guys who found the bombs in the first place, should check out the other Gellerfield generators and engines and all that. This actually did get a response. <clears throat> a horribly distorted voice told us to stand down and stay away from my machines. And then we were disconnected from the channel. That's gratitude for you. About ten minutes later, a massive series of explosions rocketed across the ship. Fucking tech priests. Now, we knew a fair bit about explosions. Every veteran guardsman does, and we were pretty damn sure that five bombs the size of the one we just defused had gone off. To us, that suggested the explosive had been linked to go off when somebody screwed up while defusing one of them. So the chances were that the ship was down a few cogboys and major systems. We weren't really concerned about that first point, but the second was worrying. Depending on which systems had gone down, we were in for a whole spectrum of unpleasantness, ranging from sudden fiery death to less sudden chilly death to lingering insane death. Sarge had decided it was probably a good idea to figure out which one we were headed for. While the rest of us got our weapons ready, Sarge tried to calm the two acolytes. The contact code for Jim still wasn't letting us through. Whatever Cogtain had done to kick us out seemed fairly permanent, but... After a few tries, he was able to get a hold of Hannah. The poor cog girl was not cut out for this stuff, and she sounded like she was on the brink of tears. Luckily, Sarge knew how to deal with sh shell-shocked rookies. With Doc's help, managed to calm her down, enough to get a status report. The news was not good. The Gellerfield generators that covered the gaps in the top and bottom decks were completely destroyed, and the fore and aft ones were damaged. Only the generator we were sitting on and the one up near the bridge were undamaged, and between them and two slightly damaged ones, there was just enough coverage to keep the whole ship from turning into a miniature daemon world. It was still a very bad idea to stay in the warp any longer than necessary. When Sarge asked Hannah how soon we were dropping out of the warp to do repairs, the poor girl dissolved into tears and broke. The real bad news, the warp drive was offline. The warp drive was the insanely complex device that moved the ship from boring, empty, die of asphyxiation or starvation space to horrible, demon-filled, die insane and choking on your own intestines warp space. Of course, the whole point of this is that there are much higher speed limits in the warp or something. 
What's a little demonic incursion if it lets you get there faster, right? Well, that is a little unfair. The difference between a 200-year and two-week journey is pretty significant, but we were understandably bitter about the whole thing. The problem was that if your warp drive breaks down while you're in the warp, you don't just pop back into reality. No, you're stuck there until someone fixes it. If they can fix it, that is. Otherwise, you might as well skip right into the insanity, cannibalism, and demon worshipping to save a little time. Things were bad, but they couldn't have been... But they could have been worse. We weren't dead yet. We had a moderately functional Geller field. The plasma engines were still running fine. And we were damn well going... We were damn well going believe that the warp drive was repairable until the Emperor himself showed up and told us it wasn't. That sentence didn't make sense in my mind. So I'm going to continue without questioning it. We got our shit together, armed the lethal perimeter defenses, and put up a few signs to warn anyone trying to get near the Geller field generator without our help was just a very painful method of suicide. We were going to hike our asses down to the warp drive and take a look at it in person because as far as we could tell, no one here... No one else here was competent enough to do it. Of course, none of us had any idea how to fix a warp drive or even what one looked like, but we weren't going to let some minor thing like that stop us. That's not to say that we didn't understand the limits of our knowledge or skills. None of us were going to try and fix the machinery ourselves unless we had to. We'd simply start grabbing tech priests and throwing them at the problem until they fixed it. Now, we were perfectly aware that the Cogton and the rest of the techies were probably trying to fix the problem, but they really hadn't impressed us with how they handled the explosions. We felt that a little oversight from the few people on board who hadn't had the common sense part of their brain replaced with a little box of screws might help things along. Our first instinct was to grab one of the acolytes. Unfortunately, Hannah had been near a blast and was trapped in a room up in the bow of the ship, and we still couldn't contact Jim. We didn't really have time to go retrieve either of them, so we figured that we might as well just Shanghai the first tech priest we came across. Prior to everything hitting the fan, Doc had spotted a cogboy bossing around a bunch of servitors a few bays back towards the rear of the ship, and he remembered that the tech priest had been doing something vaguely repair-like to a large conduit. This sounded like a good candidate for fixing the warp drive, so we lined up behind Doc and went off to see if the techie was still there. We made it to the bay where Doc had seen the tech priest pretty quickly. We'd mapped the whole area earlier, and nothing nearby was damaged. Unfortunately, all we found inside was a horrible smell and partially opened conduit that was helpfully labeled Dead Feel It Inside. Do not open. But the far door was open, and so was one in the next room. The cogboy had obviously been in a rush to get somewhere. He'd even cut through some of the thinner bulkheads, and since he seemed to be going towards the area where the warp drive was located, we decided to, uh, follow his trail. We made good time following the path the tech priest, tech priest had blazed, but the farther we traveled, the more uneasy all of us felt, twitched or that someone was following us. Doc thought he had heard the other squad members whispering, and the rest of us were just generally uncomfortable. It became apparent that we were leaving coverage of the undamaged Geller field. From here on out, shit was going to get spooky. Reality was actually pretty stable when where we were, but the minor fluctuations definitely weren't fun. Mostly it was little sounds or flashes of the 
of movement at the edge of our vision, and occasionally one of us would feel a flash of rage or paranoia. It was easy to get distracted. The Sarge kept us focused, and nothing really bad happened until we caught up with the tech priest and his servitors. Cutter was on point. As he entered a doorway, a servitor lunged at him with a welding torch. Luckily, he had his chainsword ready and easily parried the blow, then returned the favor. At that point, several more servitors lurched forward, and in a rare burst of sanity, our melee specialist leapt backwards out of the doorway. The second he cleared the line of fire, the rest of us began pouring last fire into the approaching servitors. These weren't combat servitors, thank the Emperor, but they're still damn hard to kill. Even with the hotshot last gun Nubby had got for us, it took a headshot or several joint shots to put each one down. Worse, they definitely didn't have any morale to break. The horde just kept advancing with glowing eyes and sparking tools. We mowed them down without getting through the door, though near the end of one of them, cut through the wall and barely missed Twitch. Once we were sure they were all dead, which was remarkably easy since their eyes stopped glowing with demonic light when you finished them, we advanced into the room. We figured the that the puddle with all the little chunky bits in it was probably the tech priest we were following, so much having him repair the warp drive. It wasn't a total loss, though. The cogboy had booted up a communication console before he died, and we definitely learned a few things about the state of our ship during our little chase. Mostly that servitors could be possessed or something, and, uh, and a weak Geller field meant slowly going insane, but that was still something. From here on out, we were going to operate on the assumption that all servitors would try to kill us un- unless proven otherwise. Twitch suggested we follow the same rule for tech priests, but we ve- was vetoed since we'd probably need a few of them alive to get things fixed. The console the former tech priest had warmed up for us was waiting for input, so Sarge decided to call the Cogtain and tell him we were heading towards the warp drive to lend assistance. In retrospect, this was a horrible idea. None of us had really expected him to be helpful, but we were sort of hoping he'd understand that a squad of well-trained soldiers would be an excellent escort for one of the nearby tech priests, and maybe he'd point us towards them. Instead, we just got a burst of binary and a distorted screech telling us not to desecrate his machines and to let the servitors fix the problem. Sarge tried to explain the servitors appeared to be possessed and were not likely to be fixing anything, but all that got was a second screech that sounded an awful lot like ignorant meatbags, and then the console locked us out. Bloody tech priests. Uh, before we'd been before this, we'd been operating on the usual assumption that the local leadership was moderately incompetent. But after that little tantrum, we decided to upgrade them to pants on head. This meant that, as far as we were concerned, Sarge had oper- operational command, and we weren't even going to try talking to the senior techies anymore. The only way we'd start listening to them again was if they showed up with a lot more firepower than we could muster. That decided, we headed towards the warp drive. Towards the warp drive. Aside from the little. Warpy annoyances, the rest of the trip wasn't too bad. Mostly it was just a matter of navigating the maze of corridors, reading the helpful notes, and dodging the occasional group of servitors. They all seemed to be headed towards the top of the ship, which was a little odd, but it made them quite easy to avoid. Unfortunately, we didn't run into any other tech priests during the walk, so we finally got to the warp drive. There wasn't much we could do. The drive was obviously in bad shape, about a third of the room had been destroyed by the explosion, and there were some uh, pretty big pieces of shrapnel sticking out of the big glowy pillar thing. We couldn't help but notice the lack of servitors fixing things, which pretty much proved our theory about the Cogton's competence or lack thereof. On the bright side, there weren't any servitors around to try and kill us, so it was easy to set up a perimeter around the drive room. Of course, we still needed to find someone to fix the frickin' drive, so Sarge ordered Twitch to hold the fort while the rest of the squad went off to search for Tech Priest. We got pretty lucky with that. The fifth room we checked had two of them in it. Well, not really two, more like 
one and a bit or several bits and lots and lots of little bits. The important thing, though, was the living tech priest was Jim. The acolyte was trying to put his boss back together like a very leaky jigsaw puzzle, and it did not seem to all be there. Sarge and Doc knew how to deal with this sort of thing, though, and before long they had Jim up and moving, if still a little shaken up. As we led him back to the warp drive, he kept insisting that his orders were to clean the incense burners down near engine three. Apparently, the Cogton would be furious if he didn't finish before the next maintenance cycle. We tried to explain fixing the warp drive probably took priority, but he was very insistent. When logic didn't work, Nubby took a stab. He wheeled, cajoled, and outright lied to the distraught Cogboy. See, we were actually working on the direct orders of the Cogtain, and he said it was very important that we fix the warp drive, and every tech priest was supposed to help us. <clears throat> In fact, he said he specifically said Jim should fix it because he was very impressed with all the techie things that Jim had been doing. Also, no, he shouldn't call the Cogtain to make sure. The Cogtain said he was very busy doing things with machines and servitors and stuff. To everyone's surprise, Jim accepted this complete load of horseshit and started poking at the damaged drive. Of course, Jim was just a low-level acolyte and knew very much, very little about warp drives, but they were quite a few of the helpful little notes around. He was able to pinpoint several broken components that he knew how to fix, but unfortunately, some of those fixes would be, require rare and expensive parts, parts that were so rarely replaced that no spares had been included in the ship's inventory. Now, this sounds really bad at first, but... After you spend some time in the guard, you learn the difference between what's officially in the inventory and what's available if you're willing to get a, out a crowbar. Nubby got a full list of parts from the boy, then went through each one and quizzed the acolyte about which ships, what, what other ships' systems might use them. Some were pretty much unique to the warp drive, but that turned out that most of the really important ones were also using Gellerfield generators. We got our map, plotted our route, gave Jim a pistol, and went to go make the supply run. The first step of our shopping list was deciding which Gellerfield generator to plunder. The best candidate for scavenging the parts we needed in one go were the intact generators in the middle of the ship near the bridge. Unfortunately, those parts were rather critical, and ripping them out would probably break either generator. Since those two undamaged generators are probably all that was keeping the ship in reality, we opted to try our luck with one of the damaged ones instead. The one near the, in the rear of the ship was right out. We needed the engines and warp drive to stay demon-free. So really, the only option was the generator at the all the way at the bow of the ship. It was going to be a long walk. In an effort to speed up our journey, we decided to divert the big spinal fright corridor that ran the length of the ship to the to the to the corridor. I can't read. We as, as we made our way upwards, we reached the ragged edge of the Gellerfield's coverage, and every one of us began to feel reality's grip weakening. Cutter's sword started talking to him. Doss' te teeth began to itch. Nubby could feel his old legs. And when Sergeant Twitch opened a door, they saw a headless corpse and a charred skeleton playing poker. Neither of them seemed unfriendly, but we still elected to go around that room. When we reached an entrance to the big corridor, Twitch and Jim opened up a small viewport and scouted the place. They closed it very fast. According to them, the corridor was packed with glowy-eyed servitors, and they were all working on something. Twitch also spotted a few mining demons, which seemed pretty to be randomly split between fighting the servitors, helping them, and staying out of their way. None of the none of us knew what to make of that, but it was pretty clear that the main corridor was now possess possessed servitor territory. We resigned ourselves to a long, slow hike and headed back down into the ship. Mostly, the trip was boring. 
The novelty of the ship's horrible design had worn off long ago, and we got used to the minor warp phenomena quite quickly. Seen one room with faulty gravity or walls that wept blood, you've seen every single one of them. It was nice when we got into the coverage of the fully functional Geller Field. We actually stopped and took a lunch break at our old base in the generator room. While we ate, Twitch checked his traps and reported that no one had messed with them, and Jim walked us through identifying the parts he'd need from the sacrificial generator. Once we were through the fully covered region, things started to get dangerous again. We ran across a few bands of servitors that seemed to be searching the ship for something, as well as the occasional minor demon. None of us saw any profit in slugging it out, so we all did our best to stay quiet and avoid the hostiles. Thanks to Twitch and Nubby's scouting abilities, we mostly succeeded, and the single pack of servitors and handful of demons we couldn't go around were pretty easy kills. As we got closer to the Gellerfield generator, we heard fighting and picked up the pace. The source of the noise turned out to be a group of servitors trying to get into the generator room, which someone inside was very vigorously defending. We figured that some of the tech priests were holed up in there and hit the servitors in the rear. It was a clean fight, and once Cutter had finished off the last one, we cautiously made our way into the room. Surprisingly, it was not filled with tech priests. Instead, it contained a mob of pale, old men. They were armed with what looked like modified power tools, and each of them had a few yellow notepads sticking out of their pockets. Well, it was a bit of a surprise to run into a bunch of stowaways. We sort of expected something like this. When the notes kept appearing, we knew it was either some incredibly helpful person or some sort of warp trickery or machine spirit weirdness. All of us had fervently been hoping for the, for the helpful person explanation. For obvious reasons, we hadn't been prepared for how just how old they were, though. These guys were, looked like they were over 100. The beardiest of the stowaways greeted us all by name, which was a little creepy, and introduced himself as Old Bill. Thank us for the help. He was apparently the leader of a group of crew members who hadn't been willing to leave the ship. They'd outlived three captains already, and they'd be damned if they wouldn't outlive a fourth. Sarge processed this, and then decided to skip all the bullshit about mysteries, notes, secret passages, and all that in favor of actually getting shit done. He explained the situation with the warp driver, planned to rip the generator. They'd all been defending apart, and then asked the old men what... What it would take to get their support. The geezers weren't keen on scrapping the generator, but when Jim explained the damage, the warp drive, they agreed it was necessary. The problem was that the old crew members weren't the only stowaways on the ship. They had a bunch of friends and even some family living in Hydroponics Bay 7C, where the Gellerfield collapsed, those folks would be assy deep in demons. The old men would throw in with us if we went and evacuated everyone to a safer part of the ship. And also, just while we were in the area, got rid of the small army of servitors laying siege to the Hydroponics Bay. All in all, this was a pretty good deal. Jim was going to need some time and help getting the parts ready to be pulled, and we didn't have anything better to do. Before we went anywhere, though, we had a few things to take care of. While Twitch, while Twitch pulled out a few to, a few of his toys and beefed the generator room's defenses, the rest of us went to find Hannah, who was supposedly in one of the nearby damaged rooms. We found the poor call girl trapped behind some rubble, and with the help of a last cutter, we pried off one of the servitors. We pried off one of the servitors. We got her. Oh, okay. My brain just had an aneurysm. A last cutter, we pried off one of the servitors. We got her out of there. Hannah wasn't very happy. In fact, she was practically hysterical, but she was relatively unscathed. None of us were well-equipped to handle a panicking cog girl, so Doc gave her a few band-aids, and we unceremoniously dumped her on Jim and the old guys. Our heroic rescue mission successful. We gathered up Twitch and went to the rest of the stowaways. I, I can't fucking read today. Get the rest of the stowaways out of their hydroponics bay. 
The directions that Bill gave us were great, and we quickly reached the base access corridor. Someone's being so loud in my background. I'm going to... Uh... He hadn't been exaggerating about the small army of servitors, though. In fact, it was more of a medium army now, and there had been a few demons in there, too. They seemed keen on getting inside... On something inside, they seemed keen on something inside the bay, but weren't making much headway against the big ass doors. That was a good thing because we definitely couldn't handle all the servitors with our current loadout. We needed to make a plan. We debated the problem for a while. Twitch was in favor of setting a large explosive trap. Thought, Doc thought there might be another way into the bay. Sarge explained to Nubby that we couldn't just tell the old guys they were dead when we got there, and Cutter was talking to his sword again. Eventually, we decided to go back to Doc's suggestion and started scouting the surrounding area. That's how we found Hydronics Bay 9D, the bay that the stowaways had lived in had some big warnings painted on the door, like do not enter, use console to request rations, hazardous materials, and incredibly dangerous, never open. 9D's door just had three meter high letters that said, beware of Narlock. Of course, we didn't believe that for a fucking second. There was absolutely no reason for there to be a narlock on an Imperial vessel. It was obviously just a ruse to keep people out. This meant it was probably another entrance to the Stowaways Bay. A narlock is a crude creature, by the way. Okay. Cut through there and get everyone out without the servitors noticing. 30 seconds after we jimmied open the big cargo doors, we slammed them shut again because... Holy shit, that narlock really fucking pissed. We decided to take a little breather after that scare and reconsidered our options. The bad news was that we definitely weren't sneaking through that hydroponics bay, but on the other hand, we had an amazing distraction available to us. All we had to do was get it out of the bay and down one level, then it would keep the servitors very busy while we snuck in. A little tinkering with the door controls on the nearby lift, a few dead servitors, and we were ready to rock and roll. It worked like a charm. The Narlock barreled out of the bay the second the doors were open and ran right into the pile of servitor corpses sitting on the elevator. We smashed the lift button and watched with delight as the entire army of servitors turned to face their very new, very real threat. As much as we wanted to stay around and watch it happen, we had stuff to do. The second the last servitors left the room, we dashed over to the bay's comm panel and very nicely asked them to open up. I'm not sure what we expected to find in there, but it definitely wasn't a flourishing tribal village in the middle of a small jungle. Seriously, it was an entire village, grass huts and everything. There must have been over 200 of them in there. We, we were just hanging out and living a relatively simple agricultural life in the middle of a bloody spaceship. We'd seen weirder, weirder things. Hell, we just started a fight with between the space-faring dinosaur and a bunch of possessed mechanical corpses. This was definitely one of those special memories that stayed with us. It was remarkably easy to get them evacuated. This wasn't the first time they migrated to a new home, and old Bill had called ahead to make sure they knew the score. They gathered up most of their village into packs and cargo trolleys, and then we got the hell out of there. As we walked, the sounds of battle echoed in the distance along with the occasional roar. We congratulated ourselves on the brilliant planning, assured that there was no other way this was going to come back and bite us in the ass. We led the migration back to the generator room without serious incident. The tribal seemed pretty soft. Between us and their warriors, we easily managed to kill a few daemons and servitors we ran into. Once we arrived, Bill detailed a few of his men to lead them to a safer area, then invited us to look at the preparations for pulling out the parts. We'd expected everything to be more or less ready, and they had all the tools and knowledge of the ship after all. It should have been just a matter of us saying it was time to go, then they'd pull everything out and that would be that. Instead, they gave us a bewildering briefing about what to cut, what to grab, how to carry it, where to go, and then they left. 
They didn't offer to help or check if we agreed with their plan. Hell, they didn't even ask us if we understood everything. They just bossed us around and would just lock in and laughed. In the words of that ancient guardsman hero, Alanius Pius, why the hell is everything always our job? We didn't spend too long wallowing in self-pity, though. You get used to this sort of thing when you're a guardsman. Sergeant Doc put their heads together and formed a plan. Nubby and Cutter went over the instructions we'd been given, and Twitch cleared up his traps. Jim had marked out what needed to be cut, what we need, what needed to be grabbed, and what order to do it in. All we had to do was run to safety. And we were damn good at that. It would all, it would, be, it would all be relatively simple, except for the fact that the Gellerfield would be collapsing around us. Doc and Sarge put a lot of thought into who would be carrying what. Nubby was the fastest one thanks to his automatic legs, so he grabbed the last parts. Sarge and Cutter were the strongest, would handle the heavy carts. Finally, Twitch and Doc would keep their weapons free to cover the rest of us. Each of us memorized our role in the plan, reviewed the map and directions Bill gave us, and got ready to run like the demons of the warp were pursuing us, probably because they would be. Sarge called Jim and Bill, made sure everyone was clear, and counted down. We worked fast, ripping out part after part, and cables sparked and alarms blared all around us. The second the final piece was out, we barreled out of the now smoke-filled room and ran like hell. We got about 50 meters before we felt the Geller field start to fail, and reality went funny around the edges. The whispers, flashes of movement, and sudden emotions hit us first. Doc and Twitch fired at several shadows, only one of which had an actual demon in it. Sarge started screaming at Nubby and vowed to beat the little trooper to death with his own augmentic legs, and Cutter began apologizing to his sword for not using her enough. We managed to keep it together and keep moving, though. Even if Nubby had to take the lead, since Sarge was pretty much just chasing him now, the gravity fluctuations and bleeding walls came next, along with a few more minor arcane horrors that just well, sort of blinked at us as we barreled past. Since we got slammed off of our feet when down changed to left or right, we'd taken those extra few seconds to tie down the parts and didn't lose anything. We did get damned messy, though. Luckily... Warp blood washes out just fine. Our first serious demon encounter came at about the halfway mark. Nubby came backpedaling out of room, screaming about eyes and tentacles, and we just barely managed to stop and shut the door in time. We tried to divert around, but both of our side passages seemed to open into the same place, a room which appeared to be several kilometers across and filled with fire. It wasn't time for this shit, so we popped open the hatch, chucked in four grenades and one of Twitch's debt packs, and slammed it again. The second the bang went off, we opened it back up and just sprinted across the room while doing our best to ignore all the writhing tentacles. We got a few rooms past that without incident, and then found ourselves in some sort of infinite loop of corridors. After the third time, we passed a door labeled Temporary Sewage Storage, Wear a Suit, we realized what was happening and stopped to figure things out. Behind us, a door banged open, and a mass of tentacles began to pour out. Cutter leapt into action and started hacking off limbs while the rest of us are wildly opening doors. The first one had what looked like the Hospitaller and that bitchman interrogator tied up and screaming for help inside. Sarge slammed it back before anyone else could move. The second and third were filled with more tentacles and fire, respectively. We got them closed before anything bad happened. The next one had that headless corpse and charred skeleton playing poker again. Now, now that we saw it a second time, the corpse wasn't quite headless. He just had a bad case of exit wound face. When we opened the door, he casually waved at us, then rested what was left of his head on the table while his partner turned to face us. The well-done skeleton laughed and told us we probably wanted the door across the hall labeled light cargo only. 
From the resting spot on the table, the nearly headless corpse gurgled something which prompted the skeleton to laugh again and warn us not to open the poo door. Doc awkwardly thanked him and slammed the hatch shut. After a brief debate, we took the jolly skeleton's advice. He seemed pretty trustworthy and piled through the marked door. A second later, we piled back out, grabbed Cutter, and dragged him after us. There weren't any side passages in the next two rooms. When we barreled through the last door, we found ourselves back in the familiar territory near the edge of the safe zone. As we ran, reality finally started to get its shit back together, and going got significantly easier. We started picking up speed, only stopping to pop a few minor, more minor daemons and divert around a pit that opened up into the huge fiery room again. Then, right as we started running down the last hallway, a large sword slammed through a door and Cutter immediately abandoned his cart in favor of having a sword fight with the daemon. You could say that it was an act of heroic bravery or selfless sacrifice, but you'd be wrong. It was an act of complete and utter retardation. Sergio, center that one. I didn't think about it. Uh, and only Sarge grabbing him by the legs while everyone else gave covering fire saved his stupid life. The demon followed, of course, but Hot Shots packed a punch and we kept him back long enough for Twitch to drop a few mines. The second they were down, we ran like little girls and just barely got around the corner before the demon went bang. We didn't go back to check if it was dead. As long as it wasn't following us, we were happy. Cutter had gotten a pretty mean chest wound before Sarge yanked him away, and it wasn't looking too hot as we dumped him onto one of the carts. But once the squad was fully inside the safe zone, we stopped in a handy room and Doc got to work on him. While he did the stitching and stuff, Sarge called the accolades and had them send someone to loot the rest of the way. Uh, once Cutter was sorted out, we all hiked down to the warp drive. The trip was a lot quieter this time around. The techies and the old crewmen must have been must have beefed up the rear Geller field, and we saw a few of the tribal warriors standing guard at junctions. When we reached the, the drive room, the place was a hive of activity. Jim and Hannah were running around fixing things. The stowaways were acting as assistants and advisors, and old Bill was yelling directions at everyone. The second he saw us, old Bill waved us over and filled us in. Repairs were going well. The perimeter was holding up fine, and it wouldn't be long till we could shift back into real space. We all breathed a, sigh, breathed a sigh of relief, but before anyone could celebrate, Hannah poked her head out of a gutted machine and reported that some piece of warpy tech was busted. Everyone went quiet on us. Old Bill thought for a few seconds, then brightened up and told everyone not to worry. There was a spare on board. The old bugger turned to us, gave us a toothless smile, and said he needed a few more brave lads to fetch apart from the Psyker holding cells downstairs. As one, we turned to Nubby, who started to siddle out of the room. You see, with the exception of Cutter, all of us had a bit of uh, experience with Psykers and ships with Psyker holding cells. We'd been a part of a team which had busted up a corrupt government group that was gathering up all of a planet's nascent psychers, usually as children, and was selling them off-world. That mission had ended with us being sent home with a scathing report, which we then doctored to make us look better. Last we'd heard, the jackass who was running the investigation was still looking for the rest of the ships which had been used to transport the kidnapped psychers. Up to this point, we'd put Nubby's position as the ship procurer down to bureaucratic incompetence or a completely understandable desire to get him out from underfoot. From there, it was easy to blame the horrible quality of the ship on Nubby's unique weaselly incompetence, as well as some of the ordinary variety from his bosses. All that went out the window the second we heard the phrase, Psyker holding cells, though. And we jumped to some very new conclusions. As we walked, Sarge grilled the despicable little trooper, and the truth finally came out. 
He'd spotted this ship in some report or other, and instead of turning it in and having it seized, the Cretan had decided to try and impress his boss. Nubby had flagged the ship as a prospective purchase, and then went and swore up and down to his superior that he could get it at a much lower price than anyone else. Emperor only knows why his boss agreed. Possibly the poor man had just wanted Nubby to leave for a few months. Right after that final meeting with the fat captain the purchasing process had gone normally. Then, Nubby in his infinite brilliance had told the man that he knew the ship's dirty secret and threatened to expose him if he didn't bring down the price. It wasn't hard to see why bombs had been planted on the ship, or who had been planting them. Friggin' Nubby and his stupid schemes. The worst part... <clears throat> was how he tried to defend himself, pointing out that he didn't lie to nobody about nothing, and specifically said we went quizzitas and there wasn't no odd feelings about it, it was just business, and got a really good deal even with all the dents and stuff. We were all just about ready to kill him, and Sarge probably would have, we didn't have other concerns at the moment, and so we privately vowed that Nubby would never be allowed any sort of authority, and if we survived this, everything would be blamed on him. Our current trip started to get hairy as we descended deeper into the ship. The cells were way at the edge of our current Gellerfield coverage. Aside from the usual weirdness and a fair number of minor demons, which we killed if we couldn't avoid them, we ran into a few more of those spooky doors that opened into weird places. We got that huge fi fire room five times, the tentacle daemon twice, and found one room inhabited by some sort of sewage monster. The last one might have been real, though. The note on the door did say, Xenos Waste Processing Device Do Not Enter. The last warpy door we ran into had a rather crispy skeleton playing poker again. But now the headshot man was slumped in an armchair in the corner and a bunch of other players had taken his place. We spotted a bunch of ghostly looking soldiers with regimental insignias we couldn't quite make out and some vague specters who looked eerily familiar. There was also a big guy with a sword drowning someone with robes in the punch bowl. As we tried to quietly tried to shut the door, the skeleton spotted us and congratulated us on staying alive. The near-headless one jerked up in his chair and gurgled something and slipped back down. The burnt skeleton practically fell over laughing at this, but he caught his breath right before we slammed the door. As the hatch closed, he advised us to check the cells before we took our part. A second, we'd slowly backed away from the door. It popped back open, and we heard the skeleton shout that the big guy said no hard feelings, and not to open the last cell. On that cryptic note, the door slammed shut again. We spent a few seconds digesting the skeleton's advice, how oddly the familiar the room's occupants had been. Twitch suggested opening it back up for another look, but Sarge vetoed this and led us down the corridor to the psyker cells. The Psyker's holding cells were much, much fancier than anything we'd ever seen on the occurrence border. It was a fairly small place, with only a dozen actual cells, and it had obviously been custom-built and installed instead of scavenged. It had probably been some sort of contract for hauling the Psyker's. The part we needed was sticking out of some arcane machine in the middle of the main room, right where old Bill said it was. We cut open the casing, loosened the part, and left the piece... Left it in the place... Left it in the place... While well, we checked what was inside of the cells, the skeleton and his macabre buddies hadn't steered us wrong yet. We all got into covering positions around one of the doors. Doc opened it, peeked inside, and started swearing he when he saw its occupant. The kid didn't look more than eight years old, though. Who know how long he'd been lying in the stasis field? And there was a little card at the foot of his bed, which in the Greek later great had a Greek letter and a list of specialty. This one was apparently a pyromancer and a telekine. We had checked the rest of the cells, except for the one we'd been warned about, and found about half of them occupied. 
we had five psychers between the age of five and ten sitting in stasis and the chance and chances were the only thing keeping them from being possessed by big ass demons was the part we were about to take the smart option at this point would have been to just kill them we couldn't take their stasis beds with us and we were in the middle of a freaking incursion here this was just about the worst place and time to have a bunch of untrained psychers running around and in in the end, uh, in the end, though none of us were big enough bastards to do it, one by one we pulled them out of their beds. Then, since we weren't complete idiots, we tranked them and stuffed them in our backpacks. They didn't weigh much more than a, a full field kit. For the second time that day, we planned our path. We yanked out a piece of delicate machinery and ran like hell. We didn't have to contend with nearly as much warp bullshit this time, but the second we pulled out that part, the one unopened door was dented outwards, and we heard demonic howling from literally all directions. We ran as fast as we could and kept our weapons ready. The first few the, were the minor demons we'd been seeing everywhere and only took a single shot to put them down. The problem was that every one cost us a second, and something was slamming up the corridors behind us. It did not sound remotely friendly, but we were doing a pretty good job of keeping ahead of it at first. It wasn't until we ran into the larger demons that whatever was chasing us began to gain a lot of ground. That damn tentacled demon was the first one we ran into. It burst through a door as we were running past and made a grab for Doc's kid. He dodged just in time, and Cutter managed to hold the thing off for long enough for the rest of us to get past. For once, we didn't need to pull the nutcase away from the fight. The second we were clear, he started falling back. Twitch tossed a few hot nades into the mess of tentacles, which kept it back long enough for us to slam a door shut and continue our run. A short time later, we heard some especially loud demonic shrieks, a few clangs, and the sound of a shut door being ripped apart. After that, it was clear running for a while. There were a few of the small fry, another door with the two disguised demonettes which we slammed shut. Nubby was nearly set on fire when his kid manifested a few small fireballs in his sleep, but it was basically easygoing. We were getting tired, though. Whatever was behind us was gaining. We started shutting every door we went through, and Twitch began dropping mines. As far as we could tell, that only made it more pissed off. Eventually, it became clear that strengthening the Gellerfield wasn't going to stop our pursuer, so as we ran, we got ready to fight. The moment we ran into one of the small groups of the Tybal warriors, we practically threw the kids on them and slammed the door and we'd come through. We piled the last of Twitch's death packs, and plus every grenade we had around the door, and got into firing positions. Half a minute later, the hatch burst open and a daemon host flew through. We thought it looked like a little kid with a big black wings made of smoke, but none of us got a good look before the explosives went off. The second the shockwave was passed, every one of us began pouring full auto fire down the smoke-filled corridor. After half a minute of continuous firing, our view began to clear. We all heard a voice in our heads vowing vengeance as soon as it found a more suitable host. As our order, we stayed in position for a few minutes. The case was a trick. The daemon host didn't really reappear. Eventually, we declared victory and headed up the warp drive to see how things were going. Some tribal women were caring for the kids when we got there. Doc ran over and made sure nobody tried to wake them up while the rest of us resupplied and talked to old Bill and the Acolytes. They were overjoyed to see the part we got for them immediately started welding into place. While they worked, Bill explained that everything was going pretty much alright and it was just that it was all that was left to do was call to the bridge and get whoever was piloting this thing to take us out of the warp. All of us groaned at that. We knew this meant talking to the cog team. We weren't looking forward to the conversation. Hopefully he just accepted we saved his bacon and hit the damn button to sell the yelling at stuff. Hannah went over and tinkered with the room's comm console and Serge got ready to do the talking. 
We'd been expecting a little shouting or something. Instead, we all got deranged voice screeching about weak flesh and Avatar the Omnissiah. Then the console caught fire. The consensus was that the cogtain had completely lost it, so someone had to go upstairs and hit the buttons on the bridge. Of course, everyone looked at us as they said that. It just wasn't surprising anymore. At least we managed to convince them that we needed a short break before we ran into another fight. All of us grabbed a snack. What the fuck is going on in my background? Um, all of us grabbed a snack and tried to catch a few minutes of sleep. While we rested, one of Bill's men went and fetched a really heavy ordinance that we left in our quarters. We figured that we'd need every bit of firepower we would uh, we could get for this trip, because the only way to access a command deck was through the main lift located in the big spinal corridor, the one full of possessed servitors. At least we'd been crossing it where there was a good Gellerfield coverage. When our heavy weapons arrived, we staggered to our feet and got ready for one last hike. Twitch had all of his explosives, Sarge had his grenade launcher, Nubby had a few single-shot rockets, and Doc and Cutter had as much ammo as they could carry. There was no way we'd cross that corridor without being noticed, so we might as well be ready to kill whatever we ran into. We made sure we had a clean, calm connection to the Acolytes and clanked our way towards the big spinal corridor. We planned our, our route so we'd spend the minimal amount of time in there before we got to the lifts and prayed to the Emperor that most of the servitors would be busy somewhere else. Unfortunately, it didn't work out that way. As we reached the edge of the safe zone, a pair of tribal scouts reported that the servitors were building something, almost, right on top of the list. What we saw when we peeked into the big hallway was pretty damned terrifying. The servitors were piling all sorts of materials, including themselves, into some sort of giant structure. A ring of what looked like every surviving tech priest was standing around the structure, giving commands to the servitors and chanting in binary. Up above all this activity, there was a hovering platform and standing right in the middle of it, screaming like a cross between a shorted Vox unit and a mechanical sprinkler, was the Cogton. Also, everything was glowing which was probably bad. We didn't wait to see what the hell was going on, or happening, or bother trying to find a way to sneak around it. We just hefted our weapons and started pouring as much fire as possible into both the growing structure and the tech priests. Metal and meat flew everywhere. Our first volley tore apart dozens of servitors and cogboys, but to our surprise, they didn't react at all. They just ignored us while they kept chanting and building. We did not stop to ponder this. If they were going to hold still and be easy targets, then we were going to take a lot of advantage of it. Unfortunately, this happy state didn't last for very long. Before we could kill more than half the tech priests, the chanting rose to a crescendo, and the surviving cogboys climbed onto the structure with the last of the servitors. The cogton stepped off of his platform onto the top of the thing, and with a slow, smooth movement, the whole damned pile stood up. It was like a servitor titan, and boy, was it pissed. We poured the rest of our launcher rounds and missiles into the damn thing without much effect. A few servitors dropped off, the other sort of flowed into the holes, and the thing kept coming. As it approached, the cogtain kept up his screaming and added the occasional gothic insult. We decided it was time to get the hell out of there and turned towards the, the door we came through. Right as we got to it there, there was a especially loud screech from behind us, and the door slammed shut. Then the door on the other side of the corridor slammed shut. Wait, hold on. Uh, 
door slam shot. Finally, there's a tremendous, tremendous crashing sound. Every door down the length of the corridor shut itself. We took a look at the doors, then at the servant titan, briefly pondered the situation, and started running down the corridor like scared little girls. Behind the monstrosity, lengthened its gait and started picking up speed. As we ran, we dodged past a few remaining servitors and minor daemons who wandered towards the titan. We didn't stop to worry about them, but when we looked back, the monstrosity was stopping to pick them up and slap them onto its body. This was probably a bad thing, but it was at least a slowing the monster down. We started to gain the lead on the servant titan and began considering options. We were down to shooting it a lot and hoping it had a weak point, piling our explosives together and hoping it was enough, or blasting them at a door. Sarge decided to go with a big old pile of mines, but as we were getting ready to stop and set it up, we saw something in front of us. Something about as large as the servant titan was coming down the corridor. On a closer inspection, it appeared to be some sort of large bipedal lizard with wings, black smoky wings, and horns, very glow glowy eyes. So, no shit, there we were. Trapped in a hallway with a horrible servitor titan coming at us from one side and a possessed narlock coming from the other. There were probably worse positions to be in, but damned if we could think of anything at the moment. Suddenly, blasting open a door seemed like the best available option. We all unhelpfully yelled at Twitch as he picked out a small door and set the minimum number of charges we needed to open it. Both the demonic horrors were closing in on us, and as we took cover and hit the detonator, and closing in on us as we took cover and hit the detonator. It was all we could do to stay in cover until the explosives went off. The second that door was open, we all piled through and got as far away from them as possible. Behind us, there was a loud crash, and a good portion of the bulkhead around the, around the door bent inwards. A second later, there was a meteor-sounding crash and a tremendous amount of screeching and roaring. We all watched the doorway as huge feet stomped back and forth, and the noise continued. From the look of the thing, the two monsters had gotten to a bit of a fight, and for the time being, we'd been forgotten. We had absolutely no desire to interrupt that fight. It was the only distraction we were likely to get, and hopefully one of them would kill the other. We ran alongside rooms and passages as quickly as we could to, and got as, as far towards the lifts as possible, for we blew open another door. As soon as it was open, we started running down the corridor as fast as our legs could carry us. Every once in a while, we'd look back to make sure the giants were still fighting and hadn't noticed us. Amazingly, our luck held out and we reached the elevators without incident. We piled onto the, the single large platform that would take us up to the bridge, hit the button, and breathed a sigh of relief as the fight dropped out of sight. In an offhand way, Twitch wondered if the fight would end with them combining into a Demona Serva Narlo Titan. No one laughed. As we rode up, Sarge calmed Jim and the rest to make sure everything was still okay and fill them in on the situation. The Acolytes took the news about the Cogton a little hard, but otherwise everything down there was just fine. All we had to do was hit a few buttons and we'd be out of the warp. Down below us, there was a titanic crash and a scream that shook the walls. Nubby pushed the up button a few more times and Twitch started getting the rest of his explosives ready. When we reached the top of the elevator, Twitch fixed his debt packs to platform joints, and we all headed through a pair of impressive-looking doors. The bridge was large, filled with blinking lights, had a massive but slightly cracked window that was currently covered, and was practically peppered with little yellow notes. As we stood and pondered the massive array of buttons, there was another scream, and the elevator started to descend. That focused our attention nicely, and we started hunting through the arrays of controls for the warp drive switch. Bill had said it was large, blue, labeled Fire Missile Bay 26F, and had a note that said, Never, ever, ever touch. 
That last part was completely useless. Almost every note on the bridge said that, and we wondered how the Cogton had steered this thing. Maybe he just jammed his tentacles into it or something. It took a fair bit of painful trial and error to find the right switch. Every time one of us found one that looked good, we hit it and hoped for the best. Before we got the right one, we managed to find the controls for three cargo bays, a positioning engine, and the gravity for the top third of the ship. That last one almost killed us, but Doc managed to hold on to it and get it back to normal before anyone got too badly hurt. When we finally found the right switch, we flipped it down and waited for something to happen. There was a charging sound, an incredibly loud, <laughs> and Jim helpfully informed us that a major demonic presence was keeping us from de-warping. It didn't take long to guess without what was going on. We all ran to the elevator shaft and looked down. Twitch are giggling as the Demona Serva Narlo Titan slowly rose towards us. That thing looked pretty mean. Well, actually, it looked pretty much the same as before, except with a Narlock head for an arm and an undersized set of Soki wings. Still, it was way more than we wanted to fight. Sarge gave Twitch a poke, and the trooper hit all of his detonators. The platform disintegrated along with the bottom half of the monstrosity, but as we all watched in horror, the thing sank its claws and teeth inside the shaft and began to climb. This was not a good thing. We had no desire to fight this in close combat. We got our last guns and grenades and every one of us poured as much fire as possible to the thing's hands. Mastrosi made it about three quarters of the way up to us before all at once its normal or had dis normaler hand had disintegrated. The thing had managed to hang out with its dino arm for a moment and then plummeted into the depths. A few seconds later there was an impressive squishing sound and the universe went <coughs> and tasted faintly of the color yellow. We all turned and watched as the large shutters in the bridge's front window started to open. The occurrence border had achieved reality. As we congratulated each other on the job well done and wandered back to the bridge, there was an ominous swooping sound behind us. All of us turned to face the shaft and watched as the cogtain rose out of it, completely with smoky black wings and curly metal horns. No one moved. Not us, and not the demonic tech priest. Everyone just stood there and calculated the odds. Then Cutter revved his chain sword. The cocktail let out a horrible screeching lapse and hefted his gear staff, and both of them lunged forward. Each of us sprang into action like the pros we were. A torrent of last fire plowed into the demon host, and Cutter neatly intercepted his charge. He met the cocktail staff with a chain sword, forced the stroke aside, and dodged away so he could, we could get another volley in. We repeated this trick three times before the demon host let out a scream of frustration and leveled his staff at Doc. A bolt of black lightning hit the medic in the chest and threw him into the wall, but before the cogtain could follow up his attack, Cutter brought the sword down and removed one of the bastard's metal arms. Unfortunately, he didn't manage to dodge the, cogta the cogtain's counterstroke and was nearly thrown into the edge of the shaft. With Cutter out of the line of fire, the rest of us poured as much last fire as we could into the demon host and actually started to force the foul thing back. He encountered he countered with a few more lightning bolts, but missed two Mr. Mark in the last one only f fried one of Nubby's legs. We managed to we we managed pushed. We had managed to push the cogtain all the way to the edge of the shaft where he where he crouched and put up some sort of shield behind him. Cutler, Cutter silently got to his feet and raised his sword. Matthew. Cutter didn't manage the decapitation. Is that the right spot? Sorry, yeah. Reset me again. <clears throat> didn't manage the decapitation he was aiming for. But he got one of the smoky wings and knocked the Cogton off balance. A few shots from the rest of the squad pushed him a little farther, and the demon host slowly began to topple into the shaft. The very last second, his remaining hand reached out, grabbed Cutter's ankle, and pulled it out from under him. Cutter just barely managed to grab the edge of the shaft with both hands and kick off the Cogton's grip. 
the demon host started to erratically fall down the shaft, flapping his remaining wing and screaming curses in a horrible mix of demonic and binary. Cutter didn't spare any attention to the falling Cogton. He was fixated on something much more important. Next to him, just barely out of his reach, his chainsword was teetering on the tip of the shaft. He watched in horror as ever so slowly it tipped over. Sard saw what was coming next and almost managed to get there in time, almost being the key word. Damned fool let go of the edge and swung himself forwards to his beloved chainsword. The non-com watched as Cutter made the catch, then dove like a falcon onto the flailing demon host. He wrapped his legs around the cogton, raised his rescued sword, and started hacking at the metal bastard while screaming at the top of his lungs. Sergeant Twitch stood there and watched Cutter fall toward his heroic death, but Nubby, blessed his black and little heart, sprinted as fast as his damaged leg, leg could carry him towards the bridge. About five seconds before Cutter and what was left of the demon host hit the ground, Nubby found the gravity control and threw it in the opposite direction. Sarge, Doc, and Twitch all slammed into the ceiling, collecting a concussion, four broken ribs, and a dislocated shoulder between them. Meanwhile, a rather bewildered Cutter flew back up into the shaft on a very injured demon host. It took Nubby a few tries to get the gravity just right, but he eventually zeroed it out, and Cutter managed to flail away his flail his way to safety. As soon as he was clear, Nubby cranked up the gravity as high as it was go, and Cogtain flew down the ship, the shaft at incredible speed. Later, we checked the bottom of the elevator shaft. He punched through four decks and half of an awkwardly placed wall before he stopped. We all set up camp in the bridge. Doc had a nasty burn, but it would be okay. There was a few broken bones, and Cutter had an impressive series of cuts all over his chest. The Cogtain hadn't gone down easy. We were all still alive though and based on what jim and bill told us the ship was relatively stable condition as long as you ignored the massive warp taint in the bow and the upper and lower decks that is we all we called a victory and stood the hell down it took them a day and a half to rig up a replacement elevator but we didn't notice we were busy sleeping getting the ship back in well ship shape was a lot of work but easier than it might have been for instance we might have lost a navigator and astropath who steered our ship in the warp and enabled interstellar communication, respectively. We had found the navigator alive and well. Apparently, he'd been following the standard navigator operating procedure for a warp incursion. Said procedure was just lock yourself into your sanctum and ignore all demonic silliness while you concentrate on steering the ship through the warp. A remarkably sane response, all things considered, and about the same as the one the astropath had been following, except in the astropath's case, he wasn't keeping the ship from crashing into a reality reef. He was just hiding under his bed and crying. We left the navigator to his business and pulled the astropath out and then made him send a report along to Oak, telling your boss that you're going to be late for work because 94% of your mechanic is contingent, had been possessed by demons, and suddenly and subsequently purged. is very awkward. Sarge tried to mitigate the unpleasantness of the situation by blaming everything on the cog tank. It's not like the guy was in any condition to argue. That worked to a certain degree, but we still we still wound up being very thankful for the slow and unreliable nature of astropathic telecommunication. It saved us from explaining the situation in detail, as well as a scathing lecture Oak doubtlessly would have given in return. Anyways, those two psychers were the only irreplaceable components on the ship. Old Bill loudly claimed that given enough time and duct tape, he could fix everything else. Jim and Hannah were dubious at first, but the next few weeks proved the elderly engineer right. <sighs> the next few weeks were educational. Also infuriating, exhausting, and occasionally scary, but mostly educational. First, we learned how pragmatic engineers deal with sections of ship that have been warp-tainted 
We'll only get sporadic Gellerfield coverage. You ignore them. Well, not exactly ignore. You still have to go through the effort to wall off the area and make sure nothing is living in there. Old Bill claimed that as long as there was nothing to possess and no way for warp entities to get into the rest of the ship, <laughs> it worked fine. Unless you feel you could come in later and cut out the whole section of the ship. All of us were a little dubious, but old Bill said he'd done the procedure several times before. In fact, all of those incidents where the front fell off had been the application of this method of damage control on a large scale. He even suggested that if the shipyard was squeamish about the cost of doing a cut and refit, he knew a handy trick involving carefully lowering the void shields near a star. We pondered the melted look of the occurrence border's prow and decided the man probably wasn't bullshitting us. After that, we learned just how many crocodile creatures had been living in the hydroponics bay with that quarlock. Apparently, the previous captain had decided that having a crude mercenary aboard would make him seem more rogue traitorish. Of course, when the Xenos had the gall to demand payment it'd been ditched on a planet the crew's pets were harder to clear out though and the bay had eventually been sealed in the hope that they would eventually just starve they hadn't in fact they'd multiplied and after we'd opened the bay they'd flooded into every corner of the ship the job of hunting every beaked beastie out of a section before it was sealed fell to us and some of the tribals it was a little disconcerting how many had started to mutate by the time we found them Finally, we learned that despite its size, it only really took about 50 crew to fly the occurrence border. If you didn't have to worry about cargo hauling or complex life support systems, that was. We managed to scrape up enough hands, but it was a close thing, and all of us were kept incredibly busy. At least we weren't stuck with caring for those psyker kids, though. That job fell to some of the tribal women and the useless astropath. Doc checked in on them occasionally and said they were doing fine. The rest of us just took his word for it and stayed very, very far away from that part of the ship. Sergio. Righty, yes. Uh, uh. When the repairs were finished. Yes, our journey to the shipyard resumed. Out of necessity, we kept the warp jump short and the navigator stuck to only the stablest and best-matched warp currents, as opposed to the fastest one. It took a good deal longer than what we had been originally scheduled to get to our destination, but we did get there in the end. Once the occurrence border was finally in stock, a shuttle came in and took us to the shipyard. While it was an incredible relief to get off that death trap and onto a nice, solid station, the whole thing was rather ruined by the fact that one of Oak's personal retinue was there waiting for us. The report didn't go over as badly as we feared. Oak's assistant was more incredulous than furious. Every part of our story, from the ship's purchase to the Cognitive's possession, was met, met with a sort of baffled exasperation from the man. It wasn't until we brought him to the ship and showed him the ungodly mess at the bottom of the elevator that he started believing us. Despite our earliest promise to pin everything on Nubby, we tried our best to put a positive spin on his part of things. Of course, in this case, positive spin meant twisting the truth into decorative little knots to paint his behavior as mere incompetence. You know, as opposed to the deliberate subversion of inquisitorial justice in an attempt to score a cheap ship and look for good for his boss. In the end, Nubby was fired from his job in supply, which was good, and reassigned back to active duty as part of the squad, which was also good. So that all worked out well. Once we convinced Oak's assistant that everything wasn't our fault, we were able to spare some concern for our fellow survivors. Luckily, the man didn't turn out to be a sort of inquisitorial agent who liked ordering mass executions after every little incident. 
Jim and Hannah were given a lot of praise for fixing so many things and not going all crazy like the other damn tech priest on the ship. Oak's assistant talked to some senior tech priests at the shipyard and the acolytes were given some papers which said they'd officially finished their apprenticeship and were being seconded to the Inquisition for their first independent assignments. We welcomed them to the team and wished them luck with their first interrogator. All of us have been pretty sure that the tech, the tech acolytes would come out fine, but we'd been a bit more worried about what would happen to old Bill, his band of unre unretired crewmen in the, in the hydroponic tribe. We didn't have... We didn't have, though. They were all just accepted as part of the ship. Both Oak's assistant and the yard's tech priest said that most ships had permanent inhabitants, and as long as they didn't get in the way, they'd just become part of the next crew. In our opinion, it was rather cruel to leave them on what horrible ship, on that horrible ship after all they'd done. But old Bill and the crew seemed happy with the result. We didn't kick up a fuss and wish the rest of them luck. Finally, the half dozen psychic kids we'd rescued were bundled off to whatever place the Inquisition sends powerfully on psychers. Oak's assistant seemed to think that they were the, the bright spot in all this mess and said their acquisition would do a lot to smooth things over with the boss. We took that as a sign that the creepy little buggers were just going to be shot and didn't speculate on whether being raised by the Inquisition was any better. As for the occurrence border itself, the folks working on it said it was definitely repairable. Sure, it was going to take a year of intensive work to get it livable again, but it would have fulfilled its intended purpose as, disgu as a disguised Inquisition transport wonderfully. Honestly, we didn't give a damn what happened to the horrible death trap as long as we never had to set foot on it ever again, we'd call anything a victory. Once all of those loose ends were tied up, we were packed onto a ship with Oak's assistant and rowed back in relative peace. No one told us to do things, no one interrupted our sleep, and the only tech priests around were Jim and Hannah. It was quite relaxing, and we were in good spirits when we reached Oak's ship, Nubby was called down to his end of the ship for an official firing before he was sent back to us. Twitch and Cutter hauled the acolytes down to our regiment section of ship and showed them off like proud parents. Doc wandered off to a certain medical section of the ship and wasn't seen for several days. When he finally got back, the poor boy looked utterly exhausted, but he seemed happy. Sarge was called down to Oak's office. Not the whole squad. Just him. Everyone speculated about what was going on in there. Maybe Oak was really pissed at us this time. Or maybe he was going to force Sarge to accept the promotion. In the end, our fearless leader marched back out with a glazed expression and went straight to the bar. A few drinks later, we got him talking. Oak wasn't mad at us, and while he had hinted at the promotion, he hadn't carried through. The reason Sarge was called up and why he was drinking was because... We already had our next assignment. In a few months' time, a whole new batch of trainees would arrive. It was going to be our job to teach them, whether they were guardsmen, psychers, or scribes, how to be proper inquisitorial agents. That was a damn tall order, and no mistake, hell, we didn't even need to know how to, they didn't even know how to be proper inquisitorial agents ourselves. All of us sat down with Sarge, and we began to drink, too. This next one was going to be very, very weird. Oh my god, it's even longer. Jesus, you're right. Oh! Oh! 
think they just keep getting longer as they're going on as they go on. Sweet okay Neptune, you're right. I uh, I really enjoyed this Anywho, one. The, yeah, yes. I think I enjoy each one more and more. I agree. They're all really. I'm fun. scrolling through the next one. I see Necrons and I see Chaos Space Marines in the pictures. Ooh. So nice. Needless to say, it's going to be complicated. Then there's Tyranids. There's a there's a lot of stuff on Tyranids. Oh my goodness. Oh god, I'm excited for this. Yeah, I I really love just reading this. It's so much fun to read. Yeah, I agree. And I think the people, the people, trademark, are no. enjoying it as well. Because the first episode of All Guardsmen Party is now our 10th most viewed episode. Yeah, so somebody's watching it. It's about oh, to overtake the Yonberry Dev fanfiction episode as the ninth most viewed. Hmm... Yeah, it's probably a good one to not have on there. Yeah, I'm gonna be real chief. I don't remember recording like our first fifty episodes. Yeah, Maybe I mean, I first seventy-five. You remember Craig? <laughs> yeah, the Craig bot that didn't work yeah. ever. Yeah, that thing yeah. sucked. Retro fanfic retrospective uses it. Me and Kai went over there to record a little crossover with them. It's like, this is Craig, and I had, like, PTSD. I was like, oh, me and Craig are on speaking terms. Yeah. I don't know who the 4% of our viewer base who's less than 18 is, but stop listening. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. Um, I don't have anything else to add other than that. Oh, should um, we show uh, Monster Hunter Frontier to our audience? Oh, no. yes. Drug addiction. It's like heroin. Crack. It's crack. If you if you want a free uh, Monster Hunter game uh, with a shit ton of content, uh, more, more monsters content than you than could ever any want. Existing game. Yeah, more monsters, more content than any existing game. New Monster weapons you've never used before. Yep. Yep. Uh, go check out Monster Hunter Frontier Z. Uh, it, it was a old uh, Monster Hunter game on the PC that ran from 2007 to 2019. It was shut down, but to, thanks to server emulators and private servers, you can run your very own Monster Hunter Frontier uh, server and play it with your friends. We highly recommend it. Yep. Uh, I will not be posting any links to it because we don't we, we don't pr- we don't promote piracy on this podcast. But I can nudge you toward in the right direction. Well, we're just telling them to go play it. We're not telling You're them to, to go play. illegally download it. I'm not even convinced it is illegal since there's nowhere to get it anymore, and that would classify it as abandonware. Yeah, I guess. But Maybe still, don't, don't break the law. Whatever you do, don't break the law. That's a, that's great advice, no matter what. Just don't break the law. Whatever the law is, follow it. All right. Um, I have nothing else to add. So, um, I also have nothing else to add. Bye. Talk to y'all later. We love you. <laughs>